1: Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things we can do for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Fulta. I'm a professor and a podcast host talking to you live from Archer, Florida uh, at the Exotics Farm. And today we're going to talk about gene writing. Now you've all heard about gene editing and we've discussed it ad, ad nauseum here on the podcast. But what do you do for the next wave of technology, especially as it applies to human disease? So today we're going to speak with Dr. Jeffrey von Maltzen. He's the co-founder of Tessera Therapeutics. I think you're in Boston, right? That's right. Yeah. And uh, yeah, thank you very much for joining me today.
2: Kevin, thank you for having me.
1: On the podcast, we're always speaking about gene editing these days, and you can't turn on the news, or at least on Google News, without a story about gene editing. We're talking about Cas9 and other nuclease mediated strategies that are starting to show promise in, in a number of human diseases. And you know, we st- talked about sickle cell disease on this podcast. But what are some of the limitations in these nuclease mediated techniques? With respect to human disease,
2: first of all Cas, Cas9 is as, as you said, is it, it's a sensational technology. Um, you know it's changed the way science has done. it is enabling what's likely to be a whole new category of medicines uh, and it's transcended scientific circles, as you say. I mean, everybody has heard of of CRISPR um, you know not not so often known as Clustered regular, regularly interspaced short palindromic repeats, <laughs> um, and, and to start with the strengths of, of Cas9, uh, it's 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 useful to look at its role in evolution. So it is a defense system for microorganisms against invasive DNA. So so it's this beautiful pair of programmable scissors to be able to cut or destroy invasive DNA, and, and usually, since we're always standing on the shoulders of Mother Nature when, when we create a biotechnology, it's, uh, its greatest technology applications stem directly from, from its role in nature. So when one wants to cut the genome in a specific place, Cas9's extraordinary, that often results in an error-prone repair process. And, and therefore, if you're trying to disable a gene's function, Cas9 is, is an incredible tool, as are other nucleases. However, as you, as you said or implied, if you zoom out to the full realm of genetic disease we know about today or the opportunity for genetic medicine in, in, in the decades to come, most of that opportunity requires more than turning off a gene or disabling it. And requires you to either cut and paste or cut and write a curative therapeutic message into a specific location. And, and Cas9 is not great at that, which again is a, is no fault of its upbringing, given that it, you know it evolved to be an, an exquisite means of of cutting DNA. But that led us to go searching for machinery in in Mother Nature's lab that that might just have evolved specifically for the purpose of cutting and pasting or, or cutting and writing new messages. Well, that's really
1: an important point because, you know, Cas9, everything has strengths and limitations, right? So, you know, th- there are a limit to how far it goes. So what are some examples of genetic diseases that maybe couldn't be effectively treated using Cas9 or other nucleases?
2: Yeah. And, you know, this will <laughs> this will stand out as a challenge to all of the brilliant people working on Cas9. So, um, you know, the if one focuses on the strengths of a pair of scissors, you, you would notably focus on diseases where turning off something which is hyperactive or uh, causing disease through its activity is a, a curative event. Um, however, in in biology and and technology generally, it's a lot easier for things to break down than it is for them to become hyperactive. Um, And therefore, most of the unmet need in genetic medicine could be described as residing in a category where something's broken and it needs to be fixed. And sometimes fixing a disease would would best be served by writing the entirety of the exon or the whole gene into a, a safe location in the genome, or into the the home of that gene in the genome. Other times, one needs to make a precise modification to be able to fix the the deletion or the mutation or the insertion which is causing the disease. So, so sort of diseases where you're missing a gene. For example, there's a bunch of rare genetic disorders um, where the the basis for the disease is, is a Dysfunctional, essential, or important gene. Uh, ornithine transcarbamylase deficiency is is a good example of that. Um, uh, hemophilia is another good example of that. There's there's also diseases where it's a seemingly and in fact frustratingly simple mutation that's driving most of the disease in the patient population. In cystic fibrosis, the majority of patients have a three base pair change that's causing their disease. And, and in situations uh, like those, one needs a, a tool that can go in and make precise modifications, additions, or you know, or, or to write uh, a potentially curative change into a specific location.
1: Well, it's uh, it? interesting because in the class I teach, I teach molecular biology, and every lecture we start out with the diseases that are based upon errors in dna and it's amazing how many of them are there that are just errors in translational start or intron splicing or Mm -hmm. so many different things that could be replaced and or could be fixed but you know you talk about cas9 and we talk about this all the time as a way to limit a um a very nuanced situation. Like in sickle cell disease, you can turn off the repressor of fetal hemoglobin and then express fetal hemoglobin. But in most cases, it's not like that. Most places you have a defect in the gene and now you got to replace that whole gene. And cause you can't live without it. You know, it's like if your alternator goes out on your car, you don't just beat it with a hammer until, you know, until it falls into little pieces, you got to replace it. You need that essential part. So what you're proposing is a technology where you could actually, rather than just edit to add and to write new DNA. And so is that really the fundamental difference?
2: Yeah. What, what we call gene writing is just that it's, the technology that I'll give you its uh, its origins. You know, again, in in uh, in in Mother Nature's R and D, but it's it's specific machinery that is optimized to write short or long messages into specific places in the genome.
1: Okay, so that's really important. You're talking about specific places. So it's not like dropping in a transgene. You're kind of marrying the best of uh, gene editing with a targeted insertion uh, with the ability to add an, an entire
2: insertion. That's right. And as you know, there's there are times where a disease requires you to insert the replacement gene at exactly the same location that a gene already resides. But there's a whole bunch of diseases where that's not necessarily, that's not a necessity. And uh, and being able to write with high fidelity to a safe place in the genome is sufficient to mediate a functional cure. And and we're developing tools to allow both of those uh, feats to be done.
1: Well, so many of these mutations are present in somatic cells, like, say, cystic fibrosis. The big barrier to treating that with gene therapy is delivery. How do you get the, the corrected version of a gene into all of the cells of the bronchial tubes and the, you know, the relevant tissues of the cells of the, of the, of the respiratory system to mediate that problem or mitigate that problem. So your technology, is this something that's done in embryos or, you know, germline repairs, uh, stem cells, that kind of thing?
2: The short answer is no, in that the, we've exclusively focused on the use of the, this technology for the purpose of the kind of somatic cell repair that, uh, that, that you started with. You know, in, in, a, in each organ in our body, if you take the workhorse cell types, there are diseases that result from, you know, your alternating example, a critical part of the machine breaking down. And when one wants to go in and, and mediate a, a curative therapeutic change to those cells, efficiency really matters. Uh, for safety, specificity really matters. I and mean, there's a set of sort of definable technology constraints. And uh, and we think over the next couple of decades, the medicines that are going to be mo- most important in this category are going to be the ones with maximized efficiency. Maximized specificity, maximized fidelity of inserting the right message into the desired location in that no amount of marketing or, you know, Super Bowl ad in a bathtub is going to lead somebody to want to take the genetic medicine that has an 80 uh, percent measurable bystander effect or, you know, or, or error rate associated with it. So, so we think best in class is going to win. Um, but. But we're not focused at all on uh, deploying the technology in uh, in in the germline realm uh, exclusively. The, I think the therapeutic applications uh, of, of greatest need require you to uh, do so in, in somatic cells that don't get passed on to the next generation.
1: Okay, so, so let's talk more about the technology itself. How do you actually target and insert a large run of DNA into a cell?
2: Sure. I'll start by bringing us back into nature for a moment, because um, really the the exploration that, that became Tessera was the reflection I began with at the beginning, which is that since CRISPR's role in nature wasn't wonderfully correlated with the technology requirements to either cut and paste or cut and write, a a sequence of a message into a sequence of dna we asked all right well let's let's go looking in nature and see if there's machinery that might have spent hundreds of millions of years evolving for exactly the technology requirements of of interest and and we were you know wide-eyed and 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 naive in posing that question and answer and imagining that the question might be uh that it didn't exist Uh, of course that category of of machinery exists. They're called mobile genetic elements. And uh, and the first of them was discovered before the structure of DNA was elucidated by an extraordinary 20th century geneticist named Barbara McClintock. She was awarded the Nobel Prize for that discovery and and probably could have could have won at least one more for the contribution she's had to science, this titan of 20th century science. Um, that was the first of what you could think about as like a mini life form in that um, since it's been revealed that these are extremely prevalent in nature, mobile genetic elements simplistically encode the ability to make a copy of themselves and then find a new home and move in you know i e go to a new sequence of DNA and write their code into that location and in fact, if you think about life from the vantage point that Richard Dawkins promoted uh, a few decades ago in in his famous book uh, called The Selfish Gene, which sort of put forward the idea that our genome is a unit that evolution acts upon, but it's also like this village that thousands of life forms live inside of called genes. And they're vying for their own survival too. When, When you think of life that way, the ability of a sequence of DNA to make a copy of itself and move into a new home is kind of like the minimum circle of life. And and accordingly, when you zoom out, these are literally all over the place. About half the human genome is is made up of mobile genetic element DNA. And if you mine genomes in nature, and depending on how you classify genes, mobile genetic elements typically show up as the most abundant category of genes in our living world. So if you take abundance as a proxy for how much optimization Mother Nature has put into a machine, you could argue that she spent more time optimizing mobile genetic elements or the machinery to write specific sequences of DNA into genomes than, than anything else in, in our living world. We went from thinking, you know, I wonder if this exists, to being in awe of the the abundance of these and actually, you know, realizing the real question was, all right, where do we start? Which of these still work? and didn't break down 100 million years ago, Of the ones that still work, which could work on the human genome? Of those, which could we program the code that they insert so that it's a therapeutic sequence or message and not their own code? And of course, even better, which of these could work so that they could potentially insert A wide variety of therapeutic messages, possibly programmably across the genome itself.
1: So, really, how does that work, though? You're talking about, um, uh, you know, a mobile genetic element. Can you give us a little bit of a hint of how you would give that a payload to move around?
2: Yeah. So, in nature, mobile genetic elements uh, express what becomes a protein. That protein grabs on to a sequence of RNA or DNA, then goes to the genome. And if, it, if they grabbed onto RNA, then letter by letter they reverse transcribe that one letter at a time into a DNA sequence that can be inserted into the genome. That actually led us to coin the term gene writing. Or if they've grabbed onto DNA, then they paste it uh, via a couple different mechanisms into a into a given location. So in nature, they're inserting their own code. Um, you could think of this as a form of survival or, you know, finding, finding a new habitat to live in, it, what we do is we discover uh, mobile genetic elements that have the ability to recognize sequences in the human genome and have the ability to grab onto motifs that we can embed into therapeutic messages, as opposed to having them insert their own sequence into a given site. And so what we deliver is an RNA or a DNA that codes for the mobile genetic element protein, we call that a gene writer, alongside the message, either in the form of DNA or RNA, that it grabs onto and then goes to a location in the genome and inserts that therapeutic sequence into that site.
1: Okay, well, that's a really good start. So let's go ahead and pick up from there on the other side of the break. Um, We're speaking with Dr. Jeffrey von Maltzen. He's the co-founder of Tessera Therapeutics. And we'll be back with the Talking
3: Biotech podcast in just a moment. Not to sound like a broken record, but science needs you. Uh, Sorry about the archaic reference. The broken record refers to the naugahyde or vinyl disc ingrained with little bumps in the groove that would be translated to vibration with a needle or diamond stylus if you're an audiophile like me, then electronically transduced into audible sound. The broken record implies a physical defect in the integrity of the groove that would create what we colloquially refer to as skipping. It was a phenomenon overcome by strategically placing a dime on the stylus arm. But I digress. Science needs you and your participation. Despite what pundits, politicians, and our neighbors tell us, the COVID-19 virus did not magically disappear the day after the election in the USA. In fact, the numbers are higher than ever. This indicates that the public continues to live in science denial, as well as pandemic fatigue. It's more important than ever that you inform yourself about the pandemic from credible sources and step into conversations countering disinformation. Write, speak, do interpretive dance, engage in pantomime, Write graffiti, whatever it takes to share the beautiful information about science in an effort to save lives. Well, maybe skip the pantomime. The point is simple. The glacial, glazed-over, non-excitement of incremental scientific gains doesn't grab headlines like celebrity or political hyperbole. You need to fix that by sharing the truth that science gives us. And do it in creative and innovative ways. Always taking the high road and sharing your sources. It's on all of us to write the growing titanic of scientific COVID-19 information as it navigates the sea of treacherous disinformation that costs lives and damages the economy. Now back to the Talking Biotech podcast.
1: And now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast. We're speaking with Dr. Jeffrey von Maltzen of Tessera. Uh, and uh, Tessera Therapeutics is working on a gene writing technology with the interest of correcting human disease. So we talked about, um, you know, nuclease mediated gene editing approaches, really the powers and the specificity. And is that same kind of thing true for gene writing? And And if you know, the genome is so full of these elements. How do you specifically target a given sequence?
2: Yeah, great question. You could think about mobile genetic elements as uh, preferring different lifestyles. One lifestyle would be that they're going to move into DNA anyway. You know, that if, whether independent of sequence, they just want to find a new home. Might not be so, opt- op- so great for the organism whose genome they live in. And so you can imagine, you know, sort of defense systems repressing or making it so that that degree of selfishness isn't the only optimum. Um, so, as one might expect, there's a whole bunch of them that can be exceedingly sequence specific in their activity. So, for the most part, we've been mining genomes to try to find uh, machinery that, that that fits the latter example and has the potential to uh, recognize a sequence that we predict is already in the human genome or where the features by which it recognizes a sequence uh, appear to be engineerable, so that we can go and, and, and start to create uh, defined modifications to the to the composition of this machinery that take it to specific places in the genome.
1: Well, I guess my big question is if, if it's adding DNA, adding sequences using mobile genetic elements, has this been done in plants at all? I mean, it seems like that's where this technology came from with Barbara McClintock. Um, how much emphasis has either Tessera or other companies uh, thought about doing this in that space?
2: You know, you're exactly right. Her experiments were a seminal set of maize or, or corn breeding um, instances that discovered the first uh, mobile genetic element. And um, and the the history of of gene editing machinery is sort of interesting in that um, the, the field has known that mobile genetic elements embody this more sophisticated set of actions than just cutting yeah. DNA for. A long time. Um, Yet we've only really had the tools to uh, synthesize long stretches of DNA, do so reliably, do so in high throughput, with with which to figure out which of these still work and which could work on a genome of importance and and act as a as a a useful technology for for just a handful of years. So the short answer is that Just like half the human genome is made up of mobile genetic elements, everything furry, everything green, organisms big and small have similar um, portions of their genome that have been composed by the action of these in nature. Um, But they haven't been used as a a technology nearly as prevalently as you could imagine. Um, And as we believe, you know, that they will inevitably play across every field where the Technology or you know therapeutic result depends on uh, the DNA code of uh, of either you know a plant or a critical portion of our bodies.
1: But I guess maybe that's why I look at this with with a little bit of a skeptical eye because you know we know that gene editing has a lot of off-target effects, and here you're taking something that we know is a mobile genetic element, and you're writing new DNA into the genome, how do you know where it goes and if it doesn't have an, or does it have an affinity for having other off-target sites, or does it spread from where you originally put it in?
2: Uh, I'll start with the last part. So uh, we engineer these so that they cannot jump after they've been inserted. So we're, we're adding the protein or RNA that encodes the machinery But then that machinery inserts a therapeutic message, either a single base pair modification, a multiple base pair modification, a scarless insertion or scarless deletion, or a whole gene into a specific site. But that gene is the therapeutic gene. And therefore, there's no, we're not adding what you could think of as a life form to the genome. Um, Regarding specificity, the... Performance we've seen of on-target specificity is, is already comparable to, and in many cases, better than uh, other genetic medicine and editing techniques. Um, you know, the nuclease technologies is a, is a great example. And, and this is an area where we're continually trying to improve. If if you zoom out, I think that the this is gonna become a really big category of medicine genomic medicine in general, I mean, in that you could imagine the rightful home for many future cures and therapeutics that can durably uh, protect us from uh, chronic disease or severe disease uh, will be in the form of DNA. And and fortunately for this field, that technology performance of this kind of machinery is readily measurable. And our ability to measure specificity of genome insertion, off target effects, uh, gets better all the time. So I, I think that the, the win state for this field of medicine is, is going to be the therapeutics that are able to maximize the specificity and efficiency with which a, a, a a therapeutic sequence is inserted, and minimize or eliminate uh, off-target effects and, uh, and other, other modifications to the genome.
1: Okay, so let's just say I'm sold on the technology, and I think I get how it works. What are some of the low-hanging fruits? What are some of the applications that are on the radar with your company that you think you'll be able to reverse inside the next decade or so?
2: Sure. So there's a bunch of diseases where, as we were describing earlier, the basis of the disease is that one gene broke down. And and frequently that gene has a role in uh, one primary tissue. And for example, there's a couple dozen rare genetic disorders in the liver where the cure for those diseases would be the ability to specifically and efficiently insert Curative therapeutic message into the genome. And uh, and the ability to do that would replicate with those cells. The major workhorse cell of the liver is called a hepatocyte. And, and so it could be a cure that a patient, independent of whether when they receive the, the medicine, is able to uh, experience that benefit for their life. O- over time, the, our ability to deliver uh, therapeutic payloads to tissues across the body is going to continue to expand. Um, uh, and the, since you mentioned a decade, I mean, it might be that a decade from now, it costs $10 to sequence a human genome, like my cost a dollar. And, and so our genetic understanding of disease is going to dramatically expand as well.
1: But are there some examples that we can really get attached to other than the, um, you know, liver example, what about things like cystic fibrosis and maybe some of the other, uh, genetic diseases that could just benefit from a good copy of the correct gene?
2: Yeah, that there's a few that sort of roll off the tongue when you've <laughs> obsessed over this area. Cystic fibrosis is a great one. There's a mutation called the Delta F508, uh, Uh, three nucleotide alteration, where the disease would be cured if you could reinstate uh, three nucleotides of uh, of alteration to that gene. Um, There's a a large disease, uh, a large opportunity in the liver for diseases where even single base pair mutations have prevalence across a large portion of the patient population but those can be hard to change with our existing technologies because they have other base pairs nearby that uh, some I- interventions will simultaneously change, risking a, a, a bystander uh, deleterious effect. And uh, and one of those one of those diseases is is called alpha one antitrypsin disease. Um, if you zoom out from scenarios where we're trying to fix something that's broken. And, and take a step back to the, you know, the whole realm of genetic experiments that take place with billions of people uh, on the Earth every day. There are also a, a whole bunch of areas where protective mutations are starting to emerge that could play a role in preventing morbidity and mortality from some of the biggest diseases in society. Um, there are protective mutations that can provide vaccine-like uh, levels of of protection, but against cardiovascular disease or against Alzheimer's disease, and I think while that's going to be further out for this category for the category of genetic medicine, it, it's one of the reasons why I think this uh, this area has such a uh, extraordinary potential to benefit uh, healthcare at large.
1: Is this a uh, technology that is just Too new for not quite ready for prime time. Is it something that will be with us, do you think, inside the next decade? Or, you know, and and if it is something new, uh, will the average person be able to afford it?
2: So we are a couple years away from the clinic, but by by a couple, I mean just that. I mean, this we do not expect this takes a decade uh, to get from where we stand to administering therapeutics that. Uh, we think have uh, the potential to provide, provide extraordinary benefit to patients. Um, and really, that's a testament to the shoulders we're standing on. I mean, these might be the tallest shoulders in all of Mother Nature's uh, creations in that there's just been such an in, intense selection for machinery that can efficiently insert DNA into to new locations. Um The the question of cost is a great one. Um, These are expensive therapies today. Um, Oftentimes, that is uh, a combination of how a genetic medicine is delivered, whether it's delivered with uh, uh, a modified virus to form a gene therapy vector, or whether it's delivered with um, a lipid nanoparticle or a repertoire of lipids um, protecting. Uh, a uh, a nucleic acid sequence, and, and in the latter, in particular, there's a path for these to become, um, uh, you know, reasonably priced therapeutics, and and particularly when one takes into account the the magnitude of therapeutic benefit that can come from uh, great technology here, where for the life of the cell that. Uh, has a, a therapeutic change being made to it? That cell may be protected from disease, or or may be cured of the genetic disease that it's experiencing. That has the potential to obviate the need for future courses of similar medicines. And uh, and so today we're we're seeing high priced therapeutics and uh, and largely uh, reimbursement that is recognizing the value that those create. But over the next couple of decades, the prices will definitely come down. The range of diseases that they're applicable to, and therefore the number of patients that they're applicable to it, it is going to go up.
1: It seems to me that 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 in the next few years, and we d- I did a, a version of this podcast, an episode on, uh CAR T cell therapy and that right now it's very expensive to engineer your your T cells to attack cancers but this will probably be done in you know outpatient clinics and places like a Jiffy Lube where you essentially go and get some modification done and it just is going to be a question of scale and a question of technology being some uh, you know so familiar that it becomes second nature and you know 150 years ago you wouldn't think of a Jiffy Lube right This is just a way that we can possibly uh, have this kind of technology uh, available to a larger set of people. But when you do that, the big question is, you know, where's the edge and will there be uh, folks inserting DNA for cosmetic purposes or say like these um, enzymes associated with um, um, muscle turnover, you know, this kind of thing uh, to, to form bigger, bulkier, stronger people is that kind of thing um you know where is that edge for uh the ethical use of this technology
2: yeah i I, i'll give you an answer you know personal perspective but you know this is also a category where i think everybody recognizes that there are times when it's important to act as a field and make decisions you know at that level um and, and 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 uh and I think the what we've seen from the evolution of CRISPR over the past few years is uh, the power of the scientific community as a whole taking things fundamentally off the table, and and that has only been strengthened, uh, you know, I think by uh, uh, appropriately increased attention that uh, uh, you know a few bad actors have uh, you know have uh, have incited. And and things off the table are you know we should only be deploying technologies like these to to treat important disease. Um, We've got uh, you know it's not that elusive to define what what a disease is versus what resides in in a cosmetic realm. And uh, and we shouldn't be making any modifications that uh, that could be heritable. I mean it's just um, there's so much opportunity to to do good with uh, technology in this area, that it would be um, an incredible shame and remarkably short-sighted to, uh, to stray beyond the places where you know the life-changing medicines and, and technologies can be created.
1: No, I agree a thousand percent. I guess the big question then, you know, you kind of touched on this before, but how far away are you from clinical trials and what are some of the diseases that might be easiest to target?
2: So in the, uh, we, we expect to file what are called INDs beginning in 2023. Um, so that's, you know, that's, that's roughly two years from now. Um, And the first of those are going to focus on severe rare genetic disorders, where the gene of interest is uh, has broken down, and where you know inserting the entire copy of a functional version of that gene at high efficiency can provide a cure for uh, an adult patient or a pediatric patient. And and we'll focus on diseases where um, there's appropriate. Benefit, you know, per your last question, I mean, th- there are unfortunately large numbers of patients who um, have extraordinary disease burden on the basis of seemingly really simple genetic alterations. And uh, and so we're simultaneously building within Tessera what we think will be uh, a foundry for uh, constantly improving the performance of. Uh, gene writers drawn from mobile genetic element biology, and racing to try to bring what we think will be important medications uh, into clinical testing.
1: Well, that sounds really good. I think that it's an exciting opportunity, an exciting technology that really takes us one further uh, from gene editing, which seems to be everywhere. And uh, you know, it's something that I it just is a good tap on the shoulder to, you know, students listening, postdocs listening, that the job you end up taking and the technology you end up investing your life's interest in may not exist yet. <laughs> so, so you know, there's a lot of optimism in my mind around, you know, the, the future of molecular biology and molecular medicine. And if you had any advice for students or postdocs at this stage in their career, especially during COVID-19 you know, what kind of stuff do they really need to know to be able to uh, either join Tessera or compete with you?
2: Well, well, first of all, the compete with us is an invitation. Um, you know, success here is uh, is success in the face of these diseases. And, um, you know, I, I think as a field, everybody's cheering every time somebody's somebody makes progress. It, your, um, your question about uh, for students listening, <laughs> kind of puts me back in shoes I was wearing 20 years ago uh, as a as an undergraduate, and, and I think some of the advice that led me down the path of believing biology was a sensational place to spend time is probably better advice today than it was then. Um, in that I I was an engineer originally, uh, training in chemical engineering. I interned in a biology lab. And about six weeks in, I was like, all right, I'm done. (laughs) Like, I'm spending my weekends to, you know, over the course of 12 hours, run a gel, squint at it. And no matter what the result was, the recommendation was that I should repeat it. And, And I thought, okay, you know, by contrast, it feels like I'm learning real things during the week. Like, you know, thermodynamics of all engines or all heat and mass transfer equations. But I was sustained by something my advisor said. Which was something like, "Look, everything becomes engineerable at some point, and biology's next." And, and though that's really simple, every time an elementary school subject becomes engineerable, the the implications for society are are extraordinary. You could think of the industrial revolution having been a consequence of that for chemistry, and the magic of all of the digital tools around us being that for electricity so when that happens with life it's going to be a really big deal and uh and I think the you know the corresponding invitation to aspiring scientists or people interested in entrepreneurial activities in life sciences is that it's probably right to imagine that the most important technologies and the most impactful companies haven't yet been started you know that we're just at the very beginning of uh, the impact that life sciences can have on potentially every industry. So it, it, it's going to be an awesome field. And, uh, and I think the more people get inspired by the details of biology, the better.
1: Now I'm with you. I think it's an exciting time. And you know, wish you the best going forward. If people wanted to know more about Tessera, where would they look online?
2: Sure. So we we launched a website, uh, I want to say, three months ago. So we've, we've been doing this kind of, you know, under this veil of stealth uh, prior to that. The website is tesseratx.com, T-E-S-S-E-R-A. T-x.com, t-e-s-s-e-r-a. And, uh, and you'll find a place that you can send us questions or, uh, or, or reach out if you're interested. And um, thank you, Kevin again kevin having me on really appreciate the chance to share what we're up to and look forward to
1: staying touch. yeah well do me a favor is that when you have some big breakthrough or some major milestone don't be shy about reaching out because following up on these things is so cool We've, you know we did this five years ago now almost six years ago this podcast has been going and we're able to see such incredible change over that time so please reach out anytime okay
2: cool thank you kevin
1: Okay, and thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Biotech Podcast. Write reviews on iTunes or wherever you consume podcast media. Uh, Tell a friend. uh, Show us a little love over on the Patreons, if you don't mind. That really does help us uh, advertise the podcast and improve the product we have. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you again next week.
3: The Talking Biotech Podcast reflects the personal views of Dr. Kevin Fulton and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. But after all, it is science, so they probably are, but it has to be clear that there is no university affiliation with this podcast, which is a damn shame, but I guess that's how it goes. So feel free to share this science communication effort, recommend guests, and support us with a, a few shekels over on Patreon. We invest all funds back into promotion of the podcast to widen the audience, enhance production, and expand science communication efforts in many ways. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast.